In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle unto them the fire of thy love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who instruct the heart of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us the same Spirit to be truly wise, and to ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome back to Theology of the Eucharistic Table podcast with Abba Jeremy Driscoll and Seminarians of Mount Angel. We just created a Facebook page to which we're uploading the episodes and other content, so be sure to like us on there. And before today's episode, the fifth master theme, Trinitarian Mystery through the Eucharistic Action, Part 3, we'll play for you an introduction that we recorded for the Facebook page. In this introduction, Abba Jeremy explains, and Brother Israel and Caleb chime in, what exactly theology at the Eucharistic table is. If you already know what it is and you want to go straight to the episode, feel free to skip ahead to Minute Marker 740. We hope you enjoy. Well, Abba Jeremy, can you tell us what theology at the Eucharistic table is? Well, it's the name of my book, but... Uh... The reason that's the name of my book is because uh, I have a method in theology that I'm teaching you guys, and that is to let the liturgy inspire the way we do theology, the way we think about God. And uh, so uh, in the book, I center on the Eucharist itself, uh, the church's experience of the Eucharist, and on the basis of that, uh, we methodically let the liturgy itself especially the Eucharist, inspire us in the doing of theology. That's theology at the Eucharistic table. And you can extend that method to uh, all the sacramental celebrations. Uh, so that's, that's what it is. That's the name of the course. That's the name of my book. That's the name of this podcast. This podcast is just me continuing the effort of the book in discussion with you guys. And as I've always said, I don't have uh, any other... I, when, I, when, when I'm working on the podcast with you guys, I'm just talking to you, and it seems like uh, if we have listeners that I don't know about and that you don't know about, but that are somehow out there, well, we're just sharing the good fruits of our conversation. So that's our task here. What's an example that comes up as far as the difference between doing theology in general and your method of doing theology at the Eucharistic table? What does that actually look like? Of course, the, we say that the Bible, the scriptures are the, the soul of theology, the center of theology. You're not going to be a Christian theologian unless you're dealing extensively with the biblical text. But what's the biblical text? Uh, is it a book that you open up and study? Or is there a more fundamental dimension of, that, mm. of what the Bible is? Yes, is my answer the more fundamental dimension? is when this word is proclaimed in the liturgy. Uh, and, and the word proclaimed in the liturgy has a force and, uh, and, and opens our own minds to an understanding that we wouldn't, wouldn't receive from our encounter with the word if we're just dealing with it as a, as a text to be studied. Uh, no, instead, it's part of the uh, liturgical experience of the church to hear the word of God proclaimed and preached in the liturgical setting and to be followed by the Eucharist. 
And so that's the way I deal with scripture in this living context. It's, it's going to, it's going to change. It's going to change the way I use the Bible in theology major way. That's one example. There's, there's eight more at least. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This understanding of theology really helps me, I guess, remember the importance of it, not just being like you say, a textbook, or a you know it's topic that you're studying, but it's something it's a it's a person Jesus Christ the Word and you know the Trinity God, and so there has to be, um, I guess a communication with God and a building of that relationship with God, and not just a building up of facts, memorizing facts, reading textbooks, and so that understanding of theology coming from the Eucharistic table. Um, really helps helps me remember the true, I guess, uh, purpose of theology is that relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, you study theology, you learn things about God and different aspects of theology, but then you can bring that to the liturgy and to Eucharistic adoration, and other liturgy, liturgy of the hours, and, you know, uh, come to understand God and know God more. For sure. I'm hoping that... Uh our study of theology makes us anxious to return to the celebration of the Eucharist. And, uh, and the celebration of the Eucharist uh, drives us to be better theologians so that we can, but ultimately it's so that we celebrate the Eucharist better. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean, celebrate the Eucharist better? That's to come closer to Jesus and his Eucharistic presence and, and be led by him to knowledge of the Father. That's, uh, that's why I do any of this, mm-hmm. is to get closer to God in that very concrete way that, that Jesus Christ gives us really very definite, concretely shaped access to God the Father and mm-hmm. access to himself. It seems like another part of the, um, the distinctiveness of the way we're doing theology with Abba Jeremy, or as Abba Jeremy's guiding us to theology, is that we always have something to point to in what we say. So, but Jeremy, is, various times you've said, show me that. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, in, in a way it's kind of a humorous little comment, but the fact is we can point to something um, where we're drawing from to say the things we say. So that, you know, I think somebody maybe tuning into the podcast could easily say, my God, it's, it's, um, you know, they're just kind of talking off the top of their heads. Where are they pulling all this from? I've never heard this. Um, and it seems like a lot of the work we're doing here is, yeah, maybe talking about things that sound abstract, um, maybe a little removed from our common way of speaking about God, but then turning around and saying, well, we have a reason for saying this, and that's because we went to Mass this Sunday. We went to Mass yesterday, and it was Saturday morning, and so on and so forth. So we always have somewhere to go to start from and something to go back to. Um, And it's never a classroom. It's never an office in the seminary. It's always the church. Uh, It's always gathering for the liturgy. Well, on the end of the last, last episode, we mentioned how we, had spent about an episode and a half talking about the fifth master theme, the Trinity. 
and we started looking at the next master theme, the moral life. But I asked, well, we'll think about whether we want to stay with the Trinity a little longer or move on to the next one. And Abba Jeremy responded, I say we stay with the Trinity for a little, <laughs> little longer. I, I say we're not done with the Trinity yet. <laughs> so I guess maybe as a point of entry, Abba Jeremy, did you have somewhere in particular you wanted to take us in regards to the Trinity? Well, you know, we've been using my book uh, to guide our discussions. And in, in effect, we didn't finish uh, the reflections in my book on the Trinity. Uh, it, it's, it's, I think, one of the shorter chapters in my book. Uh, but that could be deceiving. It's certainly, I would say it's probably the densest chapter of the book. And it's, it's a very carefully written chapter. And uh, I, the reason I want to stay with the Trinity is because I don't want to treat Trinity and just check it off as another topic we kind of talked about. It's the center of everything, as I, um, as I read in the Catechism. You know, it's, it's the central mystery and proclamation of Christian faith. And so we, we very definitely need to develop uh, a capacity to, to speak about various dimensions of the Trinitarian mystery. It's, it's, it's inexhaustible. Uh, uh, and also to, uh, to uh, let ourselves rejoice in uh, contemplating it. Mm. You know? So I didn't feel at all that we had exhausted uh, the topic in our several uh, sessions of discussion about it. Um, I don't know if you have particular things yourself from the last discussion that you want to pick up on, um, but um, tell me if you do. If not, I'll lead you somewhere, but I'd be interested to know some of your own. Caleb, did you, for example, have a chance to listen to those episodes yet? Um, I actually didn't, but I was looking over my class notes from the section on the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually had a question. I don't know if this is a little off topic, but there was uh, actually a high schooler that was asking me about the Trinity and talking about that. And I don't know if you'd want to bring that question up and discuss that. Um, well, what is it? We'll see. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I think I kind of answered it uh, correctly, but it was an interesting thing. He was talking about um, kind of the idea that the father was manifested in the Old Testament and then the son, you know, came in the New Testament. And now it's more this idea of the focusing on the Holy Spirit. And I was, I'd, I'd heard of this idea before. And, you know, I guess it depends on how you look at it, but it can be kind of a faulty understanding of the Trinity and salvation history. Because I remember from our Trinity class with Dr. Keogh, how in the Old Testament, you can see different aspects of the Trinity even though it wasn't fully revealed. And it was, it's not that only the Father, you know, was being revealed in the Old Testament, but that God himself, you know, in his oneness and in the three persons was slowly being revealed. And then the Son, yes, it was the Son that became incarnate in the New Testament period, but that he revealed to us the, the Trinity. And, and, and yes, after the Son left, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. But I was just kind of trying to explain to him that I wouldn't say there's, you know, separate periods for each person mm -hmm. of the tr Trinity, but that it's the Trinity is always is the one God that's being revealed to us 
through the different periods of history. Yeah. Maybe, well, you know, you were, you were right to answer him that way. Uh, and you were, I think you were right to hesitate where you did. Uh, I mean, hesitate to say it that way so neatly, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I want to invite brother Israel perhaps to comment uh, from the perspective of Irenaeus because uh, he studied Irenaeus and Irenaeus in fact um, has some answers to that. Uh, do you want to say something about that first, Brother Israel? We can call upon our Irenaeus scholar for this. <laughs> um, actually, yeah, some initial thoughts. Uh, I, I kind of agree with the abbot, which is always a good thing to do, but um, where he mentioned we should be cautious to put it so neatly. Um, like our Father's Old Testament, Son is New Testament, and the life of the church is the Holy Spirit. And you pointed to one of those things already, um, the fact that there's, you know, the Father is always the Father of a Son, and the Son is always the Son of a Father, and the Spirit is always the Spirit of the Father and the Son. So it's, there's a kind of, it's maybe it's easy for us to separate it really nicely, uh, having something to hold on to. Um, but there's other ways to separate what we see New Testament, Old Testament that reminds us that keeps together Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So one way Irenaeus does that, and when he looks at the Old Testament, um, he actually would describe the Old Testament as not revealing the Father, but the Father and the Spirit giving witness to the Son. Um, so the the real meaning of the Old Testament is the incarnation which the Father and the Holy Spirit are announcing uh, in preparation for the appearance of the Son, which is worked by Father and the Son, and Father and the Spirit. Um, so what do we have there? We have the incarnation in, in prophecy in the Old Testament. So the incarnation of the Son is announced by the Father through the Spirit to Israel. That's the Old Testament. So again, God, God's people in history receiving a revelation from the Trinity. And what's the revelation? The revelation is that the second person of the Trinity is to walk amongst men, is to sit with them, is to eat with them. Um, and then ultimately, you know, carry out his past in Jerusalem. Uh, what do we have in the new Testament? The actual arrival of the son by the descent of the Holy spirit on a woman who carries in herself the whole of Israel, um, there's, uh, you know, the Revelation 12, uh, the woman with the, 12, with the 12 stars on her head is connected to that um, dream Joseph has of, of um, all the tribes of Israel represented as stars. So to see Mary crowned with the 12 stars is this is the people of God. And, you know, we know of her, for being immaculate, the pure people of God, giving birth to the Son of God, um, again, the Son of the Father. Um, so that's another way of looking at the, what we see in the New Testament that doesn't separate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and we could do something similar for the life of the church. Um, that continuation of the presence of the Son through the working of the Spirit to deliver this people into the presence of the Father. Um, so that we have those time periods uh, rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mm. prophecy, fulfillment, and he's got different ways of talking about the life of the church, but we just call it the life of the church, which is the promise of eternal life beginning to be fulfilled. 
Uh, no, no, that's a good summary of the way Irenaeus works. And there's a couple of principles for talking about Trinity that we can draw out of that. Uh, one of them is that uh, God, we say God, but uh, members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they never act without the other. Mm -hmm. And so when God is acting or when God is spoken of in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, that with a, with a, now in Jesus Christ we have, and the Holy Spirit, we have the whole Trinity revealed. So we can look back at the Old Testament and say, always when God is acting, Father, Son, and Spirit are acting. So that's just a principle of Trinitarian theology. But they act in different ways with each event of the divine economy. Uh, so that, as uh, Brother Israel said very nicely, Irenaeus sees the Father and the Spirit acting to prepare the incarnation and effecting the incarnation. But they're all three acting as the son is, as it were, <clears throat> obeying the plan uh, of incarnation. Uh, so that's one principle that you can take out of that and that we can always use. Uh, and that's why you wouldn't say, oh, only the father was operative in the Old Testament, only the son was operative in the New Testament, and now only the spirit. No, no. no. But there is a truth in that meet father, Old Testament, son, New Testament spirit. Now, there is a kind of truth in that that need, just needs to be sort of nuanced. And it's this, that in the Old Testament, there was no sense in the people themselves of God as Trinity. There was just their dealings with God. It's only from our perspective that we can say, oh, the God they were dealing with was Father, Son, and Spirit. But from their own perspective, one of the one of the huge pieces of revelation achieved in Israel's understanding and experience of God is monotheism. There is the one God, there is no other. Uh, he is Lord and Master of creation and history. There is no other God. So this very profound sense of monotheism gets established through the millennia of Israel's own history. So that when we come to the incarnation in which the one God reveals himself in this unique and, and new and unexpected way in the figure of the incarnate son, not only do we know that in the one God, because there, there, there's no other conceivable way for Israel to, to think of God, and, and that's so firmly established. So that when Jesus comes and we look at his earthly life in his own language, we see him speaking in the way other Israelites do of God as his father, as one with whom he has a very close relationship, but certainly as someone other than himself. And yet, eventually, all that happens in Jesus, and ultimately all that is revealed in his death and resurrection, pushes the church's understanding to say, well, the Son, too, is God. But how do you say the Son, too, also is God, and stay, but there's only one God? 
And then the, the push continues with the gift of the Holy Spirit, such that the, the church feels pushed to say, and the Holy Spirit is gone. But, but from Israel, we have this very strong sense of there only being one God. And uh, so that's where, the, that's where the theological language uh, begins to develop an understanding. Ah, one God in three persons, always acting. Uh, revealing themselves so that so that now we can go back and say yeah we sort we have we Christians sort of think oh but that was God the Father in the Old Testament but no they were all three and very clearly in the in the figure of Jesus this is very definitely a period where the son manifests himself Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's he's not manifesting himself in that that way, I can I can look at him, see him, touch him, kind of way, which is the, the briefest of periods compared to the Old Testament and the time of the Church. Uh, but so the time of the Church very definitely is guided in a predominant way by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's the truth in your students' thing, but it's not like oh, so we look at the Holy Spirit now because this is the time of the Spirit. No, what's the Spirit <laughs> do? The Spirit causes us to know Father and Son, mm-hmm. and to and to contemplate the divine mystery in that way. Yeah. So everybody's right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you just have to you have to say it. You have to say it both ways, you know. Mm-hmm. And also like. At this period with the church, we say that Christ is the church and, and we are the body of Christ. So in a way, the church is specifically, you know, Christ the Lord, but also, like you say, the Holy Spirit is manifesting that and also they're both manifesting the Father. Yeah. yeah. Another maybe principle for Trinity that we covered with Dr. Keo as well that comes out of St. Irenaeus' scheme is the doctrine of appropriation, which maybe makes a little bit of sense of, you know, you said this was a uh, high schooler there at your parish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way he thought about it as, you know, Father, Old Testament, New Testament, Son, um, you know, time of the church, Holy Spirit. We tend to say, you know, the Father is the creator, not that, you know, the Holy Spirit and the Son were absent, um, but there's like a, an appropriateness to speaking of the Father as creator as long as we remember that the Son and the Spirit are, as St. Irenaeus says, the hands through which God brings about creation, we speak generally of uh, the Son as the Savior. And it's, yeah, but Jeremy said it before, it's not like he says, all right, I'm going to do my part. You guys stand out, stand in the back, and I'll come back when I finish saving everybody. Uh, <laughs> no, so it's, it's the sons being the Son of the Father and their Spirit. That's our salvation there, but we speak of the son as a savior because as you mentioned, he's the one who actually became incarnate. Um, and then we speak of the, the sanctifying spirit in the, in the church. Well, it's not like, you know, only the, only the spirit is holy, you know, the father and the son aren't holy. Well, no, that's not what we're saying. Um, but because the Holy spirit is in a certain sense, most, you know, quote unquote, visibly operating in the life of the church. Um, mm-hmm. We attribute, sanctification most closely to him um but i think that's maybe that also plays into the way this 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 um high schooler was looking at those three things um, mm-hmm. and we do see that like at different so maybe it's different stages um yeah. you know you've probably seen that 
that thing that some people have done in the liturgy. Let's hope it's not happening too often anymore. But in order to avoid uh, the names Father and Son in uh, the oh, liturgy, okay. they begin the sign of the cross. Oh, yeah. You know, the creator, the redeemer, and the sanctifier. Mm -hmm. well, what's wrong with that theologically? It's just, yeah, it's appropriation and not yeah. the speaking of the person's yeah, uh, and it's, it, it's supposed to substitute for Father, Son, and Spirit, mm -hmm. as if only the Father is the creator. Mm -hmm. But there are all three uh, involved in the creation, mm -hmm. as if only the Son is the Redeemer. But they are all three involved in the redemption. Mm -hmm. And as if only the Spirit is the sanctifier. Each title touches up in a correct way about each member of the Trinity, but only the titles Father, Son, and Spirit, by a sort of agreement of our language, mm -hmm. but also having learned this language from Jesus himself, only those three titles refer to God in God's eternal being uh, before mm -hmm. he is creating, redeeming, and sanctifying. See, uh, he is father from all eternity of the son who proceeds from him, who, who is begotten of him from all eternity and of the spirit who proceeds from them from all eternity. So that's, that's worth understanding uh, why we use those titles in that way and how significant. And so it does, it, you know, I mean, we can all say, well, you shouldn't change the words of the liturgy. Fine, but let's understand why not. There's a theological problem created when you change the words of the liturgy. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, that's just a little bonus piece of understanding there. But yeah, I think this shows up briefly in Irenaeus too, where he makes the point that we don't speak of the creator, savior, and uh, sanctifier aren't really names. They're, uh, they name an, an operation of this God in history. Um, but of course, the world which is being created, saved, and sanctified is not eternal. Um, it's temporal. Uh, it's destined for eternity uh, in God. Um, but there's a temptation to tie God with the being of the world uh, when you do something like Father is Creator, Son is Savior, Spirit is Sanctifier. It's like, what were they doing when there wasn't a world? What were they, you know, what were they then? Uh, yeah which is the, uh, yeah, another problem with saying that those are his names, which they're not. One of the ways that could be interesting for us all to uh, test and develop our muscles, uh, our intellectual muscles for exegesis is to realize uh, that the earliest exegesis of Old Testament texts by the fathers, uh, the way they treat the moments of the Old Testament, the, the way they treat the epiphanies, mm -hmm. the appearances of God. Uh, I think we rather instinctively hear those and think of that, oh, well, that must be God the Father in the burning bush. That must be God the Father uh, talking to Gideon, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or it's just vaguely God doing <laughs> that. Whereas uh, the earliest and most primitive exegesis reason no, that must be the word because there's something about the word that makes it possible for God to appear to us mm -hmm. because his nature is 
to be word of God. Whereas God, him, God the Father lives in unapproachable light. So if he's coming out toward the world, the, 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 the word is always involved in that. And uh, wow, I've been studying theology for eight to 10 years before I even was exposed to that thought. So I'm glad to give it to you guys <laughs> earlier than that. Because that's, that's a tremendous thought. And that's where you begin to learn uh, that the that all three are always involved in every epiphany, uh, mm-hmm. in every word. Thus says the Lord. You could say, well, who's saying that? Well, in a very strong sense, the word is saying that. But the word is never the word that isn't the word of the Father. So the Father is always there, and the Spirit is shaping that word, that single finite human word into a divine word always so each always has a different role in the action and the words of the one god Mm -hmm. so what else i um i understand that for a while there were places in which the those terms were being used for baptism in the baptismal formula and then the various dioceses agreed that that was not a valid baptism mm-hmm. and asked all of those folks that had been baptized in that formula to be rebaptized. So that sounds like that whole process sounds like a, a micro example, not insignificant, of course, but a micro example of this work of the spirit pushing the church, as you said, Father Abbott, in the development of the doctrine or the preservation, the protection of the doctrine in clarifying and reinforcing its, its words, its formulas, formulae, its rituals, all centered around the context of the liturgy, all around the Eucharistic table. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Same, uh, same Basil, when he was talking about the, the divinity of the Holy spirit, um, at some point he makes the comment um, that it is useless for the baptized to separate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it is dangerous for the baptizer to do the same uh, because, the, it's, because it's useless to be baptized in anything but the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like that specific, those specific words, and them three together. Um, otherwise, it's... You know, you, you said rebaptized, of course, and you probably know this, but there was no baptism right, right. there. Um, but his sense of the uselessness and the danger of both, um, to have that, that, that awareness so early. Um, and, you know, here we are, what, 1,500 years later, refiguring, you know, with some, to some degree, refiguring that out. Um, yeah. Good uh, clarification, not to rebaptize, but rather to once again participate in the ritual of baptism so that baptism could take place for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so is that, I guess, I don't know if we have time to go into this in this session. I know you have to go to class here, Brother Israel. But <laughs> I guess I was just going to try to bring you back to what might 
what might have been an example like this in the early church. So now, so this is an example of the church gathering around the Eucharistic table and preserving the doctrine to have a better understanding and to, and to further this understanding of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned, Father Abbott, that in the beginning of the church, this happened. And so it was in these gatherings that this, to, that this development took place. But I guess if we were to just hone in on that, what, what could that have looked like? Does that make sense? What could what have looked like? A development of the Trinitarian doctrine around yeah. the Eucharistic table. Well, uh, that's, that's some of what I do in, in my book uh, where I study the chapter on the Eucharistic prayer in the apostolic tradition of, uh, of Hippolytus. Uh, there we see very biblical language uh, sort of coalescing into the language of the Eucharistic prayer. And it's biblical language that feels required, if you will, to sort of pick up on my sense of being pushed uh, by the experience, feels required to uh, speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, so it... uh, in the same way that the church felt required to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because of the risen Lord's command to do so. So the church is faithful to this language. The church is feeling the pressure of naming three, uh, but the pressure of, but there can only be one God. And so uh, it's, the, it's the origin says it very nicely. And uh, that's another chapter of my book where I talk about Origen uh, finds himself also using a Eucharistic prayer to correct uh, somebody, a bishop accused of heresy around the Eucharistic prayer. Uh, because in his Eucharistic prayer, he was not praying to the Father through Christ. And so just the fact that the church was praying through Christ to the Father uh, was a way of sort of marking out, oh, well, we're going to have to talk about um, different roles for the members of the, of, the, of the Trinity, that Christ has one role and the Father has another role. And it is through Christ that we henceforth pray to the Father. And uh, Origen says very explicitly in his dialogue with his bishop, that's what's new in Christian prayer. Thank you for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, where you will receive notices about new episodes, including occasional bonus content, updates from the seminarians, images with quotes from Abba Jeremy that you can share on social media, and also our new segment called Words from the Fathers, where we share a bit of wisdom from one of the church fathers, usually connected to the episode. You can sign up by visiting our website, www.theologyatmountangel.com theology at mtangel.com.